Keep your Bibles where they are. Um, Daniel three nineteen through 27 will be our text. Um, just kind of continuing to move through the book of Daniel and, and this story, uh, the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, which I've been really enjoying. Last Sunday, we looked at the firm faith of Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they stood their ground and refused to bow and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up on the plain of Dura. This morning, we're going to look at how the king responded to them, his response to their, basically their second refusal to comply with his edict and order. So we're going to look at how he responded and and the events that took place next. But I think it's befitting that we would pray once more before we study God's word together. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your power this morning. You are omnipotent, all-powerful. When you do anything, really, or intervene in any sort of situation, nothing can stop you. Not even fire, not even a, a burning, fiery furnace, as we will see in this text. We ask, Lord that you would display some of your power here this morning. Use it to build and fortify the faith of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And use it to deliver those out of darkness who have yet to be delivered from darkness. Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to work your power. And may you alone receive all of the praise and glory for what takes place here today and for everything in our lives, everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's pick it up at verse 19. Please look at it with me. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. King Nebuchadnezzar became so angry for being defied to his face that he ordered his servants to increase the heat of the fiery furnace seven times hotter than usual. And if you have a sort of investigative mentality like I do, you want to try to figure out what that temperature would have been. So, of course, I did all sorts of research and basically found almost nothing. Um, There's no evidence out in the plain of Dura that there was a furnace there. I'm not questioning whether there was or wasn't. I believe there was. Of course, the word of God is accurate and perfectly true, but there's no remnant of it. Uh, there's no ruins of anything like that. But. So I did a little research to find out what types of furnaces the Babylonians would have used in their day. In my research, I found that they had two types, and they were both for industrial use. Um, the house furnace, if you will, didn't really come into play until the Roman Empire several centuries later. So this wasn't like having a space heater in the corner or anything kind of like that. It wasn't you know, a fireplace in a house or anything like that. It was industrial. It was much larger. And they used two types, ore smelters and brick kilns. Those were the two types that they used. If you were to increase the temperature of an ore smelter, and by the way, an ore smelter is used in iron production. You melt ore and you fabricate out of that iron, and the Babylonians were great ironsmiths. They used iron in their weaponry. But if you were to increase the temperature of an ore smelter, which was the hottest type of um, furnace that they had, if you were to increase it seven times, you would be at 20,000 degrees. 20,000 degrees Fahrenheit, not Celsius. Now, if you did the same thing, if you heated a brick kiln seven times, you'd be at about 13,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Well, the fact of the matter is the Babylonians did not have the technology to reach those levels of heat in any kind of furnace. So do we see a contradiction here in the text? Absolutely not. What we see here is more of a figure of speech. Nebuchadnezzar was simply saying, I want that thing heated seven times hotter, meaning get it as hot as you can get it. That's the point. And I think some people would get tripped up on this. Well, they couldn't reach this temperature, and so it can't be true. You know, no, that's not the way that we're to look at this text. They didn't have the technology to reach these sorts of temperatures. The idea here is that I just want it as hot as it can possibly go. And I think that in reality, what was seven times hotter here was the king's temp- his temper. He was already a hothead, but he was so ticked off at being denied in his face by these three men that his temperature went through the roof. He became seven times more angry than normal, and I can't imagine what his normal anger level was. And so I think that's the way that we should interpret this. In any case, that temperature on that puppy was raised way higher than normal. But I don't think that it was 20,000 degrees or 13,000 degrees. He was just utterly infuriated. Like, this is the level of anger where you kind of go blind and lose any rational mind at all. He was just that angry at them. I mean, just wanting them uh, to be incinerated, to be turned to ash as quickly as possible. That's how torqued he was at them. Look at 20. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. So while some of his servants were over there adding more fuel to the fire, and it was probably, I did find some research, that it was probably a a form of charcoal that they used because charcoal tends to burn hotter than some of the various woods, While they're adding maybe more charcoal to it and raising and stoking the flames and heating it up, Nebuchadnezzar summoned some of the mighty men of his army to come tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, so you men get over there and get that thing as hot as you can get it, and I want you men right there, and these guys would have been clad in the the high-end military garb, you know. I want you to go over and bring them over here, and I want you to tie them up. I want you to bind them. Mighty men were those who had proven themselves in battle. And they had received various awards and promotions. These would have been higher-ranking military officials, not the prefects, because those are like the generals, but these would have been guys that had a higher rank. I I like to think of them as maybe the best of the best in terms of fighting men, the elite, maybe like our special forces. These These were his Navy SEALs. These were his Green Berets. These were his delta force, if you will. These guys were bad to the bone. And after those men took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and bound them up and tied them up and wrapped them up, they took them up the stairs on the fiery furnace because it had this stairwell that went up to where the chimney was, where this port was or opening was. They, They were to take them up there and to throw them down through that shaft. And, of course, they would fall into it and land down into the fuel and flame. That's what they were instructed to do. I want you to tie them up, and then I want you to take them up there, and I want you to throw them into there. Now look at 21 through 23. It says, Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So the mighty men left the clothing of these three guys in place as they tied them up. Okay, they didn't strip them down uh, in any sort of way. They didn't strip them naked. They didn't take them down into their, you know, sort of cloth, underwear-looking thing that they would have had on. Uh, They didn't do any of that. They left them in their clothing. They were fully clothed. And I'm thinking that they probably, when they bound them, they probably bound their hands 
behind their back. They may have bound their ankles. And you've seen in movies or whatever, when they transfer prisoners, they usually have their hands bound and their feet bound, and they have something between them so they can't really move. So I don't know if they wrapped them completely up. I don't know how they would have negotiated stairs or any of that if they were completely immobile. So I think they probably just bound their hands and maybe somehow connected them to their feet so that they couldn't flee. So they were fully clothed and probably handcuffed in some sort of way, and maybe their ankles were secured as well. It says they were wearing their cloaks. That would be their outer garments, like a jacket. Their tunics, that would have been their inner garment. Okay, That would have been like the regular clothing under your coat. Their hats back then, and I don't, Jews I don't think wear them today, but this would have been like a turban. But don't think of the Sikh folk that we have in our community like that. Their turbans were a little different then, but they would have had some sort of a hat or turban on. And then they had other garments, which I, I don't know what the other garments would have been. I'm thinking maybe their sandals, maybe their footwear, something like that. When the mighty men had them all bound up and all that, and they were coming, drawing near to the opening, to the, maybe the smokestack or the chimney sort of thing, when they were drawing near to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego down into the shaft, down into the fiery abyss, the heat had become so intense, so violent, that literally as they're approaching it, their own clothing, we're talking about the Navy SEALs here, their own clothing got so hot that it burst into flames. And so they were burned and scorched alive right there as they're right on the precipice of the opening. That's how hot this thing was. And that resulted in their deaths, kind of leaving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego probably teetering on the edge. You know, it's like, oh, okay, that's better. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it looked like, but somehow these guys are turned into human candles right next to them. Unbelievable. Now look at uh, 24 through 25. Now, just think real quick before we look at 24 and 25, if deliverance is already happening in the narrative here, because if the fire was hot enough to kill the Navy SEALs who were throwing them in, and yet they were unscathed, then God has already begun to deliver them, right? They should have been burned up on the precipice. The miracle was already happening. Pretty interesting. Now let's look at 24 and 25. And I think that's the point. That's why he says the guys that were standing next to him were killed. God, God was already delivering them, probably as they're coming up the stairs. 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He was astonished. And he rose up in haste, meaning quickly. He declared to his counselors, did we not, he basically asked them a question, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Uh, translation, am I seeing things? What's going on here, man? And his counselors answered and said to the king, true, O king. He replied, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. <laughs> wow. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar had a front row seat to this event, right? I mean, he was close enough to where he could see what was actually going on inside of the furnace. Now, he couldn't be too close, because then he would have got burned alive. But he was close enough to where he could see what was happening inside of this thing. And that gives us kind of an idea of how large this thing was. I mean, these guys were walking around in there. Okay? You, you can't normally walk around in a regular kind of fireplace that we, you would have in your living room. It'd be very difficult to do. He's kind of blown away. He's astonished by, by what he sees here. He's got a front row seat. And while he's peering through the fuel doors or door opening, he noticed something incredible and literally sprung to his feet. 
He was astonished, it says. And usually in the Greek, astonished translates as a word called thambeo, and it means frightened. Now, this is not written in Greek, but a Greek equivalent would probably be thambeo. I didn't look. But it means to be astonished to the point of being, like, frightened. Like, you ever had one of those moments where something happens and, and it, it kind of so overwhelms and blows you away that, you, you know, like the hair on your arms and on the back of your neck kind of stands up and you're kind of just overwhelmed by, whoa, I can't believe. That's, that's what's playing out here. The hairs, the little hairs on the back of his neck stood up when he saw this playing out. He was tripping. And it says that he turned to his counselors, who were obviously standing next to him or close to him. And he just says, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And of course they answered, true, O king. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. That's exactly what we did. And then the king, who is completely bewildered at this point, who has never seen anything like this because his astral gods... The gods of Babylon are mute, deaf, dumb, stone, and wood idols who have no power. They cannot speak. They cannot work miracles. They can't do any of these sorts of things. In fact, you'd have to have puppeteers moving them around to get them to actually do anything because they don't do anything because they're not gods. They're not God. He's never seen anything like this. Quite frankly, I've never seen anything like this. Have you ever seen anything like this? I've thrown a lot of things into the fire and said, okay, Lord, deliver that thing. That marshmallow disappeared in half a second. I mean, I would be thambeo if I saw this. Okay? I'd be frightened. Wow. And so he begins to describe. Okay, so they say, yeah, yeah, we did throw three in there. Yeah, they were tied up. And he begins to describe what he was seeing at that moment. I see four men unbound. Okay, so immediately we, we, we notice, we realize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not alone in the fiery furnace. Someone was in there with them. Oh, the, the, the silhouette of a person. Okay, I, I'd be done at that point. I'd be done when I'm looking at the top of the chimney and my elite soldiers who I'm saying, man, it cost me a million dollars to train each one of them. They're gone. These guys aren't hurt. I'd already be tripping on that. But when they fall down in there and then they're walking around in there and there's somebody else with them, I'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm just done. Would you guys like to take the throne? And, and also, they were unbound. So the ropes that they used... The cords, the threads, whatever it is that they used to bind them were gone. They had miraculously been burned off of them without burning them. Now I'm wondering if they used chain. Because this thing was well hot enough to melt chain. Right? I, I don't know. I don't know if they used chains. I don't know if they used rope. But the point is they were not... They were no longer bound. Whatever it was that was tying them up, even if it was wrapped around their bodies, somehow that was gone. Their hands and their bodies, he's seeing them. Their hands and their bodies are free, and not only are they freed up that they can move their arms around and, and they can move their legs, but they're actually walking in the midst of the fire. I, I kind of get the idea that they were maybe, the four were kind of just, just talking. Now, I don't know what kind, I don't know if they were, you know, moonwalking and they just thought it was so cool. I don't know, but I think they were conversing. There's a little text in, in the book of Hebrews that seems to kind of imply that the fourth man was conversing with them. And I think they were just kind of, you know, like we would be doing in this room or outside. That's just crazy. They are, he sees them and they're walking and doing this. They are completely unaffected by the flames. He says, they are not hurt. They are not hurt. And then he says something that is really, really interesting. 
I just, it's totally interesting at this point, but then he says this one thing that kind of causes us all to go, okay. He says, the fourth man looks like what? A son of the gods. Now, of course, the Christian mind goes straight to, that's Jesus. He's the son of God. Well, not necessarily, because the ancient pagans used that phrase, son of gods, to describe someone who had some sort of supernatural ability or an appearance or something. Usually they referred to an angelic being as a son of God or the son of the gods. And so the Christian mindset, okay, that's automatically, it's got to be Jesus. Well, it certainly could have been Jesus. But this was a common phrase that they that they used back in that day, whenever they experienced or came across something that was supernatural, out of the ordinary, something inexplainable or inexplicable, they would say something like that. Now, if you drop down to verse 28, you will see that this is exactly what the king had in mind. He thought the fourth man was an angel who had been sent to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames. Okay? So the question becomes what? Who was the fourth man? Was Nebuchadnezzar partly right? And when I say partly, he pluralized God, God, so I know he's wrong there because there are no, there are no other gods, so... But was he right in saying that this was an angel? Maybe. God has sent angels to assist his people from time to time. You can see that throughout the Old Testament. But usually, the angels that he sends are messengers. They come to proclaim and to reveal truth or to encourage in regards to that sort of stuff. They don't usually come to perform some sort of delivering act. They're nine times out of ten messengers. And by definition, an angel is a messenger. So there's one theory that maybe in verse 28 he was accurate and right. This was an angel because angels uh, were known to do things like this, in a sense, maybe. And some suggest that the fourth man was Christ himself, either an angel or Christ. And if it was Christ, then this would have been what we call a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate visit from Christ. Okay, pre-incarnate meaning before God stepped down out of heaven, out of the glories of heaven, and, and became a baby and a man and all that. That's the incarnation, God becoming man. And so this would have been a visit from Christ before that moment, before that time, before he came in and grew up and preached the gospel and died on a cross and all that stuff. So that's what a Christophany is. I would say Christophany is uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son, who is the Christ, coming to visit the earth prior to his birth, prior to his incarnation. Now, there are a lot of examples of Christophany in the Old Testament, okay? And quite frankly, this passage in Daniel isn't one of these texts that drives the nail in the coffin and just affirms the reality of this doctrine or truth. Our text isn't completely clear on who this fourth man was, but there are other texts that seem to make it lucidly clear. I would say the first example of Christophany we see is in Genesis 16, 7, where the angel of the Lord, you're familiar with that phrase? The angel, not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord confronted Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, That is the angel of the Lord who came to visit her while she was out in the middle of the wilderness weeping and completely discouraged. Really bad family dynamic there. Abraham was kind of a meatball. 
The angel of the Lord came to visit her. The angel of the Lord is believed to be by the majority of good, sound theologians is believed to be the pre-incarnate Christ. And I would say one of the reasons why is because the angel of the Lord bears certain titles and performs things that regular angels do not do. Like the things that the Son of God does or would do. Uh, For instance, the angel of the Lord is referred to as a redeemer. I said earlier, typical normal angels don't usually redeem in any sense. They just pass messages along from God to God's people or to someone else. So he is called a redeemer. A redeemer who is not only a redeemer, but a redeemer who saves Israel from evil. Isaiah 63, 9. Okay, so, so the angel of the Lord is a redeemer who saves Israel from evil. Does that sound like an angelic work, or does that sound like the work of Jesus Christ? The king of angels. Uh, the angel of the Lord is also called the Lord, all capital, L-O-R-D. He is called Yahweh, that's a name of God. <laughs> Uh, Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 17, 1, 19, 1, etc., etc. You see, the angel of the Lord bears divine titles, things that God alone does. So he's obviously not a typical angel. He's special, he's unique, he's mysterious. Other examples of Christophany are seen in passages like Genesis 22, verse 11 and verse 15, where it was the angel of Yahweh, a little variation there, the angel of Yahweh who spoke from heaven to Abraham when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac and stopped him from proceeding. There's another example. Again, it was the angel of Yahweh who appeared to Moses in the flame of fire in Exodus 3.2. Throughout the dialogue at the burning bush, it was also declared that he was no less than Yahweh who spoke at that time, causing Moses to hide his face from him. Exodus 3.6, you don't hide your face from a regular angel. Sometimes we're so dumb we bow and start worshiping them. We see that in the scripture, but you hide your face from the living God, from the pre-incarnate Christ because of his radiating glory. Later, it was the same angel of the Lord who appeared to the wife of Manoah, mother of Samson. Remember the strong guy? Lost his hair and became a sissy lala. The mother of Samson whom she reported to her husband was indeed a man of God that had appeared to her. When Manoah asked for the angel of the Lord to also appear to him, the angel repeated the appearances and his conversations to him, after which, here's what the angel of the Lord did, after which he ascended in the flame of the altar, implying the sacrifice was in worship of him himself. Judges chapter 13. It's interesting, isn't it? It's just some of the things that the angel of the Lord did. The brilliant, and I do mean brilliant, this guy's on a league of his own, theologian Dr. John Walvard wrote, it is safe to assume that every visible, every visible manifestation of God in bodily form in the Old Testament is to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God appears in in smoke and in fire and these sorts of things, but once in a while He takes on human form. And whenever we see that happening in the Old Testament, we are to say, that's Jesus. That is a Christophany. That is... Christ taking up human form just as he's going to do way out in the future when he comes to redeem his people. That is him doing that, showing that that's what he's going to do. 
So, are we dealing with a pre-incarnate visit from Christ here in our text, a Christophany? Are we dealing with just an angel, like Nebuchadnezzar thinks? Or are we dealing with the king of angels, the angel of the Lord? And here's another fact. The angel of the Lord is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, not once in the New Testament. Why? Because he came. Right? He's not mentioned one time in the New Testament. Why did that fall off? Because he came. I'm going by a different title now. In fact, I'm I'm completing, I've come to complete my redeeming work. So are we dealing with a Christophany here? I I would say maybe. Why? Because the text just, just does not make it completely clear. But I want you to think about what happened in our text. This fourth man in the fire with them and delivering them from the steps on. I want you to think about, just ponder the deliverance that's being carried out in this story, in this narrative, in this event. I want you to think about that form of deliverance being delivered from fire, and I want you to think about the work of Christ for a moment. Who delivers us from fire? An angel? No. Christ delivers us from fire doesn't he? Deliverance from eternal damnation and punishment in a fiery hell is part of Jesus' saving work. It's part of the gospel message. Because of this, this makes sense that he would appear before his incarnation to reveal an aspect of his saving work. What I'm telling you is that what you're seeing here playing out in the burning fiery furnace is a foreshadow of deliverance from the fires of hell that he would take care of and deal with and accomplish for us later when he would come in the incarnation. So the fourth man absolutely could have been Christ. And this totally could have been a Christophany. And in my opinion, it was. But my opinion's usually worth less than two pesos. But I think that it was because of the nature of the deliverance and the nature of Christ's redeeming work. His appearance in the fire and the deliverance he provided for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego may have been meant to point to his future incarnation and the deliverance from hellfire he will provide for all who believe. It's a Christophany in my mind. It just fits, doesn't it? It fits. James Montgomery Boyce agrees with me. Actually, it's the other way around because he's not with us any longer. I've been reading multiple commentaries, and I like some of the things that he's said about this text. It's really hard to find stuff that you can kind of quote. He, he says, or he writes, It is not difficult to know who the fourth person was. I love that because as Christians, we tend to make things that are fairly clear, very difficult to understand. In fact, we spend so much time trying to figure these things out, we kind of forget about what's actually playing out here. Some people have done that with eschatology, the end times. That's all they ever focus on is how that's all going to go down. Meanwhile, they're not evangelizing. Meanwhile, they're not loving people right now. He says, it's not difficult to know who the fourth person was. It's not He was Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. Perhaps the form he had when he appeared to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or in which he wrestled with Jacob beside the brook of Jabbok. As I said, we need to be careful not to miss what God has made perfectly clear in this text. Okay, it... It's not perfectly clear 
that this is Christ or an angel. I think that it makes sense that it is Christ, it's a Christophany, but it's not, that's not perfectly clear here. And I don't think that no matter what you do, I don't think you can squeeze this orange anymore and come up with the right solution. It's just not there. Why? Because that's not the point of the text. There is something, and I wouldn't say anything's bigger than Jesus or bigger than the angel of the Lord and bigger than his work, but there is kind of some, there's a, there's a meta-narrative and meta-point here that's playing out that we need to see. Because I tell you, we can get all spun out on trying to figure out who this person was. If we get wrapped up in trying to figure out who the fourth man was, we could easily do that and kind of miss the point. We could easily miss the forest for the trees. Let me tell you what God has made perfectly clear in this text. And that is this. That he walks through fiery trials with us. You see, if you get all wrapped up in trying to figure out who the fourth man was and you miss the fact that God's presence is with us at all times through the good, the bad, and the ugly, you have just missed out on something that is so glorious and so faith-building and so assuring that brings us strength. You've just missed the point. God has made it perfectly clear in this text that He walks through fiery trials with His people, with people who have faith. What what else that He has made clear? That He is present. That God is present in the midst of our distress. Have you ever read Isaiah chapter 43, specifically verses 2 and 3. Isaiah 43, verse 2 through 3. It contains what I call the promise of God's presence. Now, this promise is reiterated all over the place. At the end of Matthew 28... I am with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, this is, this, this is not the only place where we see this promise. But this text has it. 43, 2 through 3, it contains what I call the promise of God's presence. And what's significant about this, what's interesting about that particular text and that particular promise is that it was written right before the Babylonian exile. Right before it. It's a preparatory letter to, the, Bab- to the, the Jews that are about to be carried off. That's the point of some of Isaiah's writing. You're going to be carried off, and you need to have some instructions as you go. And that's what makes this particular promise here very significant, because it has everything to do with what we're seeing in this text. God wanted to make sure that His people, even though they were under His disciplinary hand, and boy did they need it because they had given themselves fully to idolatry, He wanted His people, because He's a gracious Father, He's a merciful Father, He wanted His people, even though they were being disciplined and carried off so that they could be carried back to Him in some sense, even though they were going, He wanted them to know that He would be with them while they were in Babylon. Be kind of like your parent banishing you to your room because you blew it, and then him or her going in there and sitting with you. Now, I'd rather be in the room and do my thing and break stuff and throw things, but it would be like that. And by the way, you need to go into your room and shut your door and all that, but don't shut it too soon because I'm going to go sit in there and look at you. That's awkward, Mom. Yeah? I want you to know that I'm present because I love you. I want you to know that the discipline that you're receiving is not a punishment and that I hate you, but that I'm going with you because I love you. Now, I'm not going to talk to you while I'm in there. Not right now. I'm going to sit in there and look at you because I don't want you to get the wrong impression This discipline does not have to do with me completely dismissing you and casting you out and hating you and not loving you anymore. Very similar. 
Let's just read it. Isaiah 43, 2 through 3. Oh, man, listen to this. This is... Oh. Here's what God says to his people before they transition from Babylon, or from Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon. When you pass through the waters, obviously there were some rivers and things that they had to negotiate on the way. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Here it is. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. See, what we're looking at here in Daniel 3 is the fulfillment of this promise. God promised to be with his people and to protect them as they passed through the drowning waters and consuming flames. This commitment to be with his people, of course, found its richest fulfillment in the coming of Christ, the one who was himself Emmanuel. Emmanuel, that name translates as God with us. In Jesus, the promise of God with us took flesh and walked along the weary paths of this world. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this God, I will be with you promise. All of these other examples of God accompanying His people through the wilderness and all these places ultimately just point to Jesus who would come as God and accompany His people and literally, literally walk with them for years and years and years. Before His ascension, Jesus told His disciples, and I pointed to it earlier, Behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. The Lord manifests His perpetual, on and on and on and on, never ending. He manifests His perpetual presence with His people through the Holy Spirit who literally indwells His people. It's not just that God is with us, it is that God is in you. This means, obviously, that God is with us at all times and in every circumstance. Every. There isn't a moment where He isn't with you and in you. You cannot surgically remove Him. You cannot sin Him out of you. You cannot extract Him. And when we walk through fiery trials like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is with us and in us. We are never alone. Never. What did Nebuchadnezzar do next? <laughs> oh, he's just got his mind blown at this point. He's just asking questions and declaring all kinds of stuff. and He doesn't know. He's just... He's all jacked up. Look at 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He didn't just come to the door, or close to it at least. He got as close as he possibly could without him getting smoked. He comes up to the door. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, God above my gods, come out and come here! Exclamation point. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. The king stepped up or stepped away from his front row seat, which would have been at a safe distance, and he approached the opening or the fuel door. He got close enough so that he could holler at them. At this point, the fourth man must have already disappeared, right? Because he didn't call him out too. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and mysterious fourth man, come out and come to me. 
No, he's gone. Poof. He was gone. Look at how he referred to them as servants of the Most High God. Servants of the God above my gods, above all other gods. Earlier in verse 15, he had said, Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In verse 26, he answers his own question. The Most High God, obviously. My bad. It is the Most High God. Our God is the Most High God. Why would we even have to say that when we know there are no other gods? Because the whole stinking world thinks there's other gods. So we have to say, well, our God is higher than all those gods. you got all sorts of gods out there. None of them are true. None of them are real. None of them have this power. They can't even speak. They're just like totem poles. This is the most high God, the God above all gods, even though other gods don't exist. Must really break God's heart that he's behind everything, all of creation and everything, and people are so quick to give all the glory and attention and praise to some stupid created thing. Something that was intended for their good and welfare and joy We take those things and we turn them into gods and then we begin to worship them. Romans 1. It is the most high God. He is the only God. And Nebuchadnezzar seems to believe that here to some degree, at least at the very minimum. Their God is higher than mine. This is kind of what he said back in in the earlier chapters, right? When... The dream was interpreted and explained and interpreted. Obviously, your God is higher than my God's because he can do something here with dreams that mine can't. This is the second time he's saying this. After addressing them, he commanded that they step out of the burning, fiery furnace and what come to him, they obeyed. Look at 27. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors... And the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had, not had any power over, their, over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And the smell of fire had not come upon them. Verse 27a, we read that, that the king had his top officials come over and inspect the three men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want you guys to come over here and get a visual. Look these men up and down. The satraps, the prefects, satrap, again, ruler of a particular area, prefect, military leader, governor, another type of ruler, and counselors. These are the top officials in his administration, right? This is his his high cabinet, if you will, his secretary of state, and what have you, his vice president, I guess. They began to look these men up and down, searching for damage, even sniffing them. That would have been weird. What are you doing? (laughs) Searching for damage or injuries. And they quickly realized that the fire had no power over them. Verse 27b gives examples of the fire's powerlessness. First, the hair on their heads was not singed. Now, hair is much more durable than I thought it is. I don't know if you know how durable hair is. It's much more durable than our flesh. It begins to burn at 450 degrees Fahrenheit. This is why you ladies can get away with, you know, blow dryers and flat irons and all this stuff. And if you notice, my wife saw, hey, that's really an interesting fact because my hair iron goes to 450. It's right on the edge of turkey roasting your hair. And sometimes I come out of that bathroom and I'm like, I think she just burned her head off. This is why you ladies can get out. You take that same flat iron and you just take it and clamp it onto your arm. What's going to happen? 
The hair will be in place, but the skin under it will be gone. And this is why you gals can get away with using these, this beautification-heavy equipment. Beep, 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 right? The temperature in the fiery furnace was well beyond 450F. Probably three to 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Iron melts well before that. And yet the hair on their heads was perfectly intact. There was no singeing at all. That's amazing. I mean, they could have at least came out hairless. Like came out and just looked like albinos, no eyebrows, no nothing. You know, it's like, okay, it did something to you. That's understandable. It's 4,000 degrees. No, they came out and their hair was perfectly done and they had the gel and the hair. Secondly, their cloaks were not harmed, it says. The outer garments they wore were completely unaffected by the heat and flames. No burn marks, no discoloration, no curling. You know, when you heat up your fabric too much, sometimes it starts to curl up like that. You know, last year I attempted to iron a white shirt. By the time I was done, it was yellow. And I said, what did I do wrong? She said, you had the heat on too high and you weren't moving fast enough. I never even got to wear the dumb shirt. That was the first time. It went from Target to my ironing board to the trash. I was ticked. It was 12 bucks. That that was an unbelievable waste of resource. There were yellow spots all over it. I had to throw it out. And there were no such marks or discoloration or anything like that on their outer garments. You couldn't tell. Lastly, no smell of fire had come upon them. You ever been camping? We we got any campers out here? Anyone like camping? Yeah, you ever been camping? Or or have have you ever... sat in front of an amazing bonfire and just kind of chilled out and you know, enjoyed the heat and the flames and you know, the flames are dancing around. You got that crazy uncle that has too many cervezas and he runs and tries to jump over it. You got one of those people in your family? Me? Yeah, I'd do it without cerveza. You, you've been to one of these things, right? You know, I love that smell. Like once in a while, you'll be at your house or whatever. Maybe you go out in the front yard or the backyard and somebody's ac- actually having a fire, you know, and you'll smell the almond wood or something like that burning and it reminds you of camping. It brings back all of those memories when you were a child, you got bit by that rattlesnake, right? You know, all that stuff, right? You smell that smell and you're like, wow, that is amazing. I love that smell. Every time I smoke meat, I get to experience this because I smoke meat with hickory or mesquite or, or oak or something like that and it kind of permeates and... Now, I love that smell, but I don't love it when it's on me because you can't seem to escape it. You turn around, you smell like a forest fire, no matter what you do, right? I like the smell at a distance, but I don't like it on me. It seems to permeate your clothing and get into you. You know, you're at a bonfire and and everything's cool and all of a sudden the smoke just envelops you and you're like... (laughs) And then you have that smell all over you. My wife gets really ticked at me when I smoke meat sometimes because I'll forget to... The, the smoker's literally outside of our bedroom. You know, we have this little patio and it's outside of that. And I'll sometimes leave the slider open and just have the screen. And, I'll, you know, I got, and it's just billowing, you know, out of this thing. And I'll, and I'll just kind of, okay, everything looks good. And I'll walk away and I'll go in. And I won't shut the slider, but I'll shut the screen. And I'll go in and, and, and then we'll, I'll come back and the whole entire back end of the house is filled with smoke. And she starts hollering and yelling. And then about a week later, when she goes to put on a certain dress, she's like, dude, I smell like Smokey the Bear. Way to go, dummy. Only you can prevent forest fires. You see, they didn't have that smell on them. And it wasn't because they used charcoal. Charcoal puts a nice smell and flavor into your meat. Probably one of my favorites. There, there was no smell of smoke like this on their clothing. Their, their, their hair was fine. 
their cloaks were unharmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. It wasn't as if they'd just been to a bonfire. They didn't have any of these problems. Now the question I ask again, because I have an investigative mind, is why did the Holy Spirit inspire Daniel to include these details? Why do we have to know about their hair and their cloaks and, and no smell of fire on them? Why is that relevant? Why is that important? Well, I'll tell you why it's important. I'll tell you why the Holy Spirit said, record that. I want, I want God's people to know. Why? Because God wants us to know how comprehensive His deliverance is. Even that salvation itself, the salvation that He has wrought for us and that He brings into our lives, that He blesses us with, that it is multidimensional in that it has present and future implications. For whatever reason, Christians today like to think of their salvation as a future event. Yeah, it's out, it's out in the by and by. I'm saved and, and I'm going to benefit from that out in the by and by when I breathe my last breath or whatever. You know, they say, in the future I will be saved from hell because of Jesus. That's kind of the, the boil down of the gospel and salvation. You know, we just reduce it down to being saved from hell, which is obviously kind of a future thing because you're still breathing. You're not standing there where you have to go here or there. Well, is this a wrong perspective? Is it wrong to say in the future I will be saved from hell because of Jesus? No, it's not wrong. It's a true statement, but it's only half true. God's salvation also has present or what I call real-time implications. Right now! In other words, salvation isn't just something we will experience out in the by and by, out in the future. It is something we experience now and out in the future. Our text illustrates this perfectly. The deliverance Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced at the fiery furnace was real time, not out in the future when they breathed their last breath. And then it happened while they were alive. It kept them alive. It drives me crazy that we Christians miss the benefits and the, and the blessedness and the amazingness and the glory of present moment, right now, real time salvation. Oh, it's just in the future, I'm not going to have to go to hell. Well, that's what you say, that's true, but that's a pretty narrow view because let me tell you, pal, you're blessed right now. Our deliverance is the same as their deliverance. It is real time. If you are in Christ by grace, through faith, through the power and work of the Holy Spirit, the devil and the flames of hell have no power over you. They cannot singe your soul. They cannot harm your clothing. The righteousness of Christ. They cannot permeate your spirit with the smell of smoke. No brimstone shall be upon you. That's not a scripture. Sounds like it. Real-time deliverance means being preserved and protected, not just delivered once and for all. Yes, that, but it also means being preserved and protected from the forces of darkness and hell right now. What does it say in Colossians? He disarmed the authorities. And some of us live with this incredible fear and worry, and anxiousness, and anxiety, and so much of that is inflicted upon us by the enemy who keeps whispering in our ears that he has power over us, that hell is our true destination because we continue to struggle with sin. He's a father of lies. We have been delivered from him once and for all, but let me tell you, friends, God is delivering you right now because that dirty devil is all over you right now. You don't even realize it.
What is the theological term for real-time deliverance? It is eternal security. You know how many Christians don't have eternal security? They think that the salvation is up to them and how well they can maintain and balance. You know, i got to keep my holiness level up. Look, man, if you didn't save yourself and it's all by God's grace, then you can't lose it! If you did save yourself, then of course you can forfeit it. I'm telling you, our great high priest is right now sustaining our faith, protecting our faith, fighting the devil even now who brings endless accusations against us. Our deliverance is not just out in the by and by. It is now. It is now. It is now. Now, this is the first dimension of salvation. There's, it's multidimensional. I'm going to start wrapping it up here. I'm going a little long, but are you okay with this? I don't even care. I mean, I care about you. You guys are into this. I'm looking at your faces. Bruce is, Bruce is picking his arm. <laughs> he felt a little heat there, you know. He's, Get off me, devil. Okay, so that's the first dimension. It has real-time, right-now application. Right now, it has a right-now, real-time dimension to it. God's salvation is, is now, and, and, and the joy of our salvation, and all of these things come packed into that. Salvation is something that we experience now. We have been delivered. He's continuing to protect and preserve. We've got the joy. We've got all these blessings. We have this inheritance and these things that we're longing for. We see in Ephesians 1. It's just amazing, but it is now. That's the first dimension. Now we have the second dimension, which is not represented in our text. I'm going to share it with anyways it has to do with future deliverance and this is something that we tend to focus on more than the other we look to the second dimension more than we do the first and we need to be balanced because it's great to have hope and and to long for that future deliverance that's fantastic that is our hope that's a good thing but man let's not be so focused on that that we miss the joy of our salvation right now and the the current and constant and perpetual protection and love and grace and mercy and provision of the lord it's all packed into that first dimension right now so the second has to do with our future deliverance god is going to deliver us from every trial, every enemy, every ailment, every weakness, every discomfort, every disappointment. I'm yelling. When we either go to be with Him or Christ comes to be with us. Now, the crummy part is that we have to wait to experience this dimension of our salvation, right? That's the the part that is tough. That's the part that's hard. Now, don't miss this, because this is the true point of this text. The good news is God is with us while we wait. The good news is God is with us while we wait The good news is, is that God passes through fiery trials as we pass through fiery trials. Friends, I'm here to tell you this morning, we are never alone. And I'll close with another quote from Boyce. God does go with His people in their trials. Countless believers have testified to that. So let us be confident in the promise of his presence and be strong. Let us stand for what is right and do it. Let us refuse to compromise. Let us stand with unbowed heads and rigid backbones before the golden statues of our godless materialistic culture. Let us declare that there is a God to be served and a race to be won. What? The race of faith. Let us shout 
that we are determined to receive God's prize, which is far greater than the world's tinsel toys. And let us shout that we are servants of Him before whom every knee will bow. Let's pray and partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank You for the salvation that You have given us in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that it has present, real-time implications as well as future implications. That Your deliverance is multidimensional. It's now and it's then. You have delivered us from the evil one and the fires of hell and You continue to preserve and protect us from them. And one day, one day, You will deliver us completely and usher us into eternal bliss and glory. Father, we thank You for the promise of Your presence and the Holy Spirit who manifests Your presence in us. We thank You that we are never alone and that You pass through fiery trials with us. Father, help us to be strong. Help us to stand for what is right. Help us to stand with unbowed heads and rigid backbones before the golden statues of this world. Help us declare that there is a God to be served. It's You. And a race to be won, the faith. And help us to shout. Help us to proclaim. Help us to declare that we are Your servants. Father, as we approach these supper tables to our left and right, remind us once more of the broken body and shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was beaten for us. He was bloodied for us. Why? So that we could be forgiven and delivered. Father, search our hearts. Expose our sin. And grant us mercy and grace as we confess our sins during this time. Nourish us with the body and blood of Christ as we partake of the bread and juice. That's what those things represent. And fill us once more with the joy of our salvation. And empower us once more for gospel ministry. We pray these things in the matchless, precious name of our Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus. Amen.